Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Grants. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Are we ruining organizing? Are we like ruining communism? What are we we're ruining? ruining organized labor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I guess we're ruining capitalism. All of that stuff. We're going to dive into hot labor summer with a very special guest. Well, I'm very, very excited to have my old friend, Miles Kahn, who has written, produced, and directed hundreds of episodes of TV and specials and commercials and music videos and films. And he's won all kinds of awards like Emmys and WGA Awards and Peabody Awards. He was the senior producer on The Daily Show. He was the executive producer of Full Frontal with Sam B. And he is on strike. Yeah. Welcome, Miles. Yeah. Welcome. What, a, what an intro. I love Great it. Great to have you. No, I'm very, very excited for you to be here. I'm, so we always open to, up. Yes. You're excited to what? To be to be with you. This is wonderful. I'm excited to not uh, to have an excuse to not strike today. <laughs> <laughs> Are we keeping you from the picket lines uh, no, right now? <laughs> the, no, the pickets were earlier. They were earlier. We're good. Um, so we always open by asking, uh, how are we doing and what are we drinking? So Miles, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I am doing really well and I'm going to disappoint your um, your hardcore fans because I'm drinking water. But I have a really good reason. I'm running a race in a few days and uh, I swore to myself I would not drink this week. So um, water is my vodka um, and just let's leave it at that. It's so important to hydrate. <laughs> <laughs> hydrate or die. Hydrate or die. Uh, well, how about you, Rebecca? What are you doing? How are we drinking? <laughs> I am actually drinking my favorite Kreuter schnapps. <laughs> so I spoke about this in a previous episode that my new obsession is Underberg. I just I'm holding it up so Miles can appreciate Underberg. The of what these is that? Tiny little bottles. It's a digestive bitters. It's a German thing. Uh, it's alcoholic, but they market it as a digestive aid, and it's like this old 19th century recipe with a bunch of different herbs. It's very bitter. People generally have it after a meal, but you know what? We don't have to be prescriptive like that. Let people live their lives. I'm having it right now. <laughs> and it's such an adorable bottle. Is it just on ice or is it, or did you add it to something else? So I poured it over one ice cube in a little cup, but many people drink it straight out of the bottle. Oh. So it's like, it's like a Fernet, if you will. It, it does have similar qualities. I find it a little more palatable than that. Well, here's where I have to say that one of our listeners, longtime listener from Germany, recorded the pronunciation of all of these things. So is this the moment where we're going to play it? Yes. Okay. okay. So here is our listener, our name Summer, sharing how to pronounce Kreider schnapps and, <laughs> and other terms relevant to Underberg. Hello. This is your friendly quarter German speaking. Sorry if I'm German explaining. Kräuter schnapps or herbs booze is just the beverage. The actual drink can be called digestive, 
mainly in areas uh, that were occupied by the French. Verdauungsschnaps, which means digestion booze, or Absacker, from the assumption that food has to sit down or sucken in the stomach. Bye. I really appreciate how he said he didn't want a German splain, but, you know, he still <laughs> is helping it's, us out. It's not German splaining if you are explaining to Americans who don't know German at all. It's only German splaining if you're explaining it to other Germans, I think. Okay, that's fair. And Maya, how are you doing and what are you drinking? To be honest, I've been better. Oh. But, uh, I, you know, I just feel like um, I'm just overwhelmed with all the things I have to do. So that's fine. I am drinking the Rowan's Creek that is in my studio. And so we'll see how I can sort of keep it going because after we record, I'm going to have to like make dinner for my children and practice violin with my seven-year-old and all that I'm kind of shit. telling you it will be better after the bourbon. <laughs> I'm telling you. All of that will be easier. Take my word for it. But uh, I, I think we can all relate to feeling a bit overwhelmed. I wanted to add one last thing before we get into talking about all of the strikes and labor action of this summer and even going into fall. I've been meaning to tell you, Maya, that uh, remember how I was reading Dune? I did my reread of Dune. I decided to read the sequel, Dune Messiah. Okay. Even though it's been like 25 years since I first read Dune and I have held off and avoided reading any of the sequels because I understand that they suck, that they're kind of terrible. And I didn't want to ruin what is officially my favorite book. And I just want to tell anyone who might be listening and who hasn't read any of the Dune sequels, do not read Dune Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I could unread it. I, I wish that were possible. So it's hot labor summer. And what does that fucking mean? And you're on strike. And what does that mean? Uh, it seems like right now the Writers Guild of America, uh, which is the union for Hollywood writers, for entertainment writers, and the Screen Actors Guild are both on strike. Earlier this year, there was an averted strike for IATSE. Um, what's the deal, Miles? Catch us up on that part of it. Summarize um it. <laughs> summarize the entire strike. I am yes, not, I'll preface this with I am not a strike captain. I am, I am not a media stalwart for the uh, Writers Guild, so I will probably not do as good a job as a pro. But uh, basically, during COVID, all of our uh, all of our proceeds started to dwindle uh, because we realized that everybody went to a streaming model and they never updated the rules of how we got paid and how much we would get paid for future stuff. Um, that's kind of the biggest. That's the kind of the big ball of wax. And so we're just trying to get them to update reasonable pay for reasonable work. Um, there's a lot of different tenets. Uh, that we're fighting for um, residuals is a real big one because uh, residuals for streamers are a lot different than residuals for basic cable or broadcast television. And everybody is producing stuff for streaming. There's a lot less episodes of television per season than there used to be. Uh, so we're not working as much, which is part of the streaming model as well. Uh, and then they're forcing us to do very small writers rooms, which they uh, creatively called mini rooms. 
many rooms are just their way of saying we're going to pay uh, less writers to do more work. Um, Sounds so cute, though. It's it's adorable. <laughs> uh, apart from those pay issues, we're also fighting for uh, AI restrictions. So they can't uh, tell us to write something that an AI wrote, which an AI probably based on one of our scripts to begin with, um, and then rip us off and say, well, we're just paying you for rewrites. It's not original material. That's a very important one. It's very forward thinking. We're also fighting for minimum staffing, which is a bit of a controversial one in some circles, uh, because there are the um, brainiacs among us, the Vince Gilligans of the world, uh, who write most of their own show and don't really need that much more help. And then there's the more the uh, sort of the the, um, the humans like myself who would love a nice big robust writing room and um, would love to have it enshrined in our um, in our contracts. That yes, if I'm going to do twelve episodes of TV, I would like. Eight writers for 12 weeks, please, to break this. So um, there's a lot more to it than that. But, the, it, you know, it comes down to money and greed and future tech. And how can everybody uh, kind of be a working writer, a working stiff person? Because they're treating us like gig workers. And we can't, um, we, we, there's no such thing as a middle class writer anymore. They've squeezed us out. That's it. And I want to add, because I think this is going to be important moving forward as we think about how to tell these stories, is that uh, it's not only that they're moving to a streaming model for distribution and in a lot of times production, it's that a lot of the streaming companies aren't entirely dependent on the entertainment they produce to make money. So Ooh. if Apple is part of the negotiating room and Apple's like, mm -hmm. fuck it, we make most of our money on iPods. Yeah. I don't have to pay these writers because their uh, economic survival does not depend on the entertainment they're producing. It's one slice of the pie. Um, yes. So we're seeing that um, a lot of these companies are bringing these business models that they're not in on the same in the same boat. There was a way in which you could feel that like at some point, like, yeah, the studio is in the same boat. Everybody wants this movie to hit because everybody's going to benefit from that. A lot of the people, uh, a lot of the companies are not in that boat anymore. And so they can come harder to the table. As of, um, uh, we're recording this Tuesday, September 19th. As of that date, uh, what our union has told us and what I believe is that it is a, um, there's a lot of infighting within the AMPTP, that is the organization of, of uh, studios and producers who we're battling against right now, because you have these legacy broadcasters joined serotypically with uh, a bunch of Apple T, Apple Plus, which sells iPhones for a living, and Amazon, which sells other shit for a living. And they don't care. This is just like a fun thing to do on the side for them. And apparently, Netflix is, from what I understand, the biggest stick in the mud uh, that is kind of dragging everybody down. And they've said this publicly now, uh, the WJA said that we're, we've, we've heard from all these legacy studios, they want to make the deal. They're ready to make the deal. And it is these classic streamers, the Netflixes of the world, they're saying, yeah, whatever, we're good. We're going to dig in our heels. And that's the problem. That's very interesting. I can sort of imagine many reasons. Like Netflix, unlike Amazon or Apple, doesn't have another business that they're making their money from. But I can imagine some of the reasons why they would feel the need to dig their heels in because of their business model being like they want an enormous amount of content, but they don't make more money depending on like 
how much better it's not like releasing a movie and the movie has a gross the movie makes a certain amount of money it's like they're just looking at subscribers and there's yes. no direct link between the number of subscribers and the content itself like they i'm sure they have their metrics for knowing why people subscribed which and, they make very which they make very very opaque like yes, any of the metrics they have opaque. they keep they don't like, want to reveal who's who's watching what how many people are watching what and well, i don't we're know fighting, I just, we're fighting for that as well i, I left that yeah. out in my original spiel is that's a big one too is they're they're under a curtain we don't know who's watching our stuff we don't know how much our content is worth to them we don't know if it's a hit or not a hit and that is a huge how are you supposed to negotiate how are you supposed to know your worth saying like, I have a hit show on Netflix. I don't know if I have a hit show. Yeah, people are talking about it at the at the water cooler, but does that translate into they're making more money off of me? Netflix's model, as you said, is subscribers. Once they get you for two seasons, they don't care. They will cancel your show after two seasons because they don't care. It's not about art or creative to them. It is about numbers. Right. And it's not even about... Um because I could argue that for all of the studios always, sometimes it was a little bit about art, but it's also about that kind of like grabbing the zeitgeist of the moment, like what's going to get mm -hmm. everybody in here right now. And I feel like we're also in a time where the way that material is distributed, time is less important. That's why I think Barbie was such a crazy thing this summer, because it's like, this is the thing everybody's seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of these streamers keep the show, watch it now, watch it in five years. It doesn't have that same, like, but we're trying you to won't strike. be able to see it in 10, in five years. They're taking it right. off because they don't want to pay what little residuals they're already paying. They don't want to pay that in five years. They're finding every way to, to cut us off at the knees. It's kind of remarkable. And I say this, by the way, I say this, if anyone's working for Netflix right now, I, I listen, I'd love to work with you guys. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> I still want the chance to work with, like, there's still going to be good, exact, like, in all honesty, there will be good executives there. There will be good, like, development people and creative people there who do give a shit and want to make good stuff. My ire is reserved for the the CEOs. It's not for the 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 rank and file people there who do want to make good stuff. Yes, it's a business. And so is HBO and so is Showtime and so is NBC. They're all biz they all have a bottom line. Don't get me wrong. I have to play ball with them. They're my bosses. They're paying for, they're paying me to to play. So I I get it. I'm not trying to look a gift horse, but at the same time I'm like, you guys make a lot of money. Can you just share a little please? Come on. Yes. And right. I think that's something that we're going to see. So I just want to keep that, like, we're not asking for that much. Um, but I also just want to briefly talk about how this strike is happening in the context of a notable increase in strike and union activity happening all over the country. So as of this moment, the United Auto Workers are on strike. Uh, there was a massive UPS strike that was averted at like the 23rd hour. In LA, the hotel workers are on strike. Uh, the California health workers and California, uh, California fast food workers, their union just got minimum wages of $25 an hour for non-doctor healthcare workers and $20 an hour for fast food workers. There's a lot of unionizing going on in surprising places, Amazon warehouses, Starbucks. Um, a lot of these places that formerly were not thinking of themselves as labor are organizing as labor right now. And we're coming out of, this is kind of the first post-COVID 
moment of labor because in the years leading up to COVID in 2018 and 2019, hundreds of thousands of teachers struck all over the country. There was a massive General Motors strike. And so just to talk about some of the things like what is this moment right now in terms of labor? Because it's a big fucking moment. So in an LA Times article, they were talking about how the cost of living has been jumping so high that even standard raises are pay cuts. And corporate profits are on the rise. And unemployment has remained low. So workers have bargaining power in a way that they haven't in a lot of times. Um, Nelson Lichtenstein, who teaches labor history at UC Santa Barbara, said that the pandemic had the effect of delegitimizing management in every which way. So I think the pandemic was a huge part of people going, okay, what is actual important labor? What is like necessary what do you do for a work? Exactly? What do you do? What yeah. do you do to make the machine run? Like, right. Well, um, this was this was when like the people, the cashiers at the grocery store became essential workers. You know, that's we right. were we were applauding right. out our windows in New York City every day at like what was it five or six o'clock? You know, it was like right. this routine of like honoring these work, and now we're back to just being like deliver my shit, um, which sucks. Um. And yet, and yet it has left for these workers the sense of the ways that they are important workers, that they are essential. Oh, hey, I should be able to like pay my rent, especially as uh, rents and house pri housing prices are spiking. Um, what is interesting about this moment, and here are a couple of other strike historians and their thoughts about it. Um, Caroline Luce uh, said in an interview that one of the things I think is most magical about this moment is that all these workers are seeing their fates tied together. Strikes tend to work kind of industry by industry. So like Hollywood will strike, but the teachers won't, whatever. What we're seeing is that all of these workers across industries, hotel workers and Hollywood and auto workers and people at Starbucks are all seeing themselves as labor in opposition to these sort of corporate powers and organizations. Uh, William Gould, who is a Stanford professor about labor, talks about how um, the growing inequity over the past 50 years, uh, the way that income for workers is not at all keeping up with inflation, um, that we are seeing this new rise in surprising groups of workers unionizing, like grad students or or uh, like in universities, there's this kind of unionizing. Um, and as we said, that uh, the pandemic forced society to take account of people whose contributions have not been properly valued. He also states, and I just want to keep that in the air as we move on to the union as a story, that President Biden is, in his opinion, the most pro-labor president we've had since FDR. That's a strong statement. Because he's an old man who remembers <laughs> when right. the unions fucking mattered. He's like, <laughs> you know, the gerontocracy actually works when we have this old guy who's like, I remember right. the That's how I grew up. And when he was when he was younger, there was, you know, probably I don't know what the percentages are, but probably closer to 30, 40 percent of American workers are in unions. Now it's what is it? Maybe in the low twenties or so? It's like, about eleven or twelve percent. What? what? Yeah, really? No, it's true. About oh, 11 gosh. to 12% of American workers are members of unions. Wow. Well, that's not good. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> but it's because no. corporations have atomized workplaces so that people organizing or feeling like they're part of like when so much labor is bullshit jobs. You're not going to like, this is the bullshit jobs union. It's hard to imagine or to organize around that. And there's an increasing push with technology towards everything being gig economy. So yes. like you think about like Uber drivers, like you can't have a taxi driver strike right now. How are Uber drivers going to organize? They make it as impossible as they can for drivers to even find each other. So I think that that corporations have been very canny about trying to atomize labor as far apart from one another so that they can organize. Yes. Employers have many dirty tricks for keeping <laughs> unions from forming. This is this is my first strike and I've uh I, you know I'm only in the union now. I'm both Directors Guild and Writers Guild and I I I joined both about the same time about I guess about 7 8 years ago. And what's interesting to me, I remember the, the writers strike before this and it was kind of like this lonely sad little thing and they were marching in the winter which made it even sadder. And they made some gains, some good gains, but I don't think they got anywhere near the press that we got. And then on top of that, we have all these great solidarity strikes. I went out and picketed with American Airlines flight attendants, which was doubly interesting for me. My father was an American Airlines pilot for many years. Uh, and then iron workers will come to our strike. And, and all sorts of different kind of like, you know, pipe fitters and like 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 tr more traditional uh, style unions will, will come and picket with us. And the, the tenor of the chanting gets much, much better when they show up. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's much it's much basier. <laughs> Uh, and, but I, but that it's like, it's, I, I really like what the Writers Guild has done, which is like, this isn't just about us. We're going to march with you. You're going to march with us. This is a movement. And they really, look, I'm, I'm not a guy, I'm not a great joiner. I'm, I've always like, man, I'm like, I like to be cynical. And this thing got me over that hump of like what a union is and what they do. Like, I'm very proud of my union and I'm, I'm so much in support of what they're doing and sticking to their guns and watching i know we'll talk about it later but watching all these talk shows try to come back and then get shamed shonded into into you know capitulating and saying oh we screwed up um god bless we, we did the right thing by sticking to our guns so it's it's there is a there is a movement afoot spent the past week watching a bunch of labor movies, like union <laughs> movies, because I was thinking like there are really famous ones. And so how is the story told? How does the story get told of like what labor is? Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that after the early 80s, there aren't many, <laughs> like after Reagan, there are not many union movies. And even actually in the 50s and 60s, um, like the 70s were a big time and early 80s were a big time for these kinds of movies because the 50s and 60s, there's such a red scare that you can't have movies about organized labor. It's like on the waterfront where it's all corruption, corruption, corruption. Um, so I'm trying to think like, what are the dynamics that we find in a lot of these movies? Um, okay, Maya, tell us which labor movies you watched in preparation okay. for this okay. conversation. I watched Norma Ray, 
which I mean, fucking classic and the union organizer is a big fucking Jew and it's played by a Jew too. It's not this like Jewish character played by an attractive- No, no Jew face. <laughs> no, no. It's like a real goddamn Jew. Um, we have The Killing Floor from 1984, which was actually made for PBS, but it was recently re-released at like the Venice Film Festival. It's sort of having this moment of being appreciated again, even though it was like made for TV, but it was made for PBS. So that's different. Um, I watched Salt of the Earth, which I didn't even know about. It's a 1954 movie where the writer, producer, and director had all been blacklisted. <laughs> it was the only American film to ever get an official release in China between 1950 and 1979. And it was an underground film in the U.S. for decades. Um, Pauline Kael famously just called it commie propaganda. I mean, it sounds uh, like it was. But... It was, but yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> I watched another movie that I didn't know about, which Ellen, our guest on Oppenheimer, was like, Maya, how did you not watch this? Blue Collar from 1978, which was Paul fucking Schrader's directorial debut and is starring Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel as auto workers. Like... Come the fuck on. So good. Um, and of course, went back to Harlan County, USA from 1976, which won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Uh, Barbara Koppel's magisterial film where she lived in Harlan County for a year and put together this unbelievable documentary about coal workers and the strike. So I watched a lot of these fucking movies. All right. I recommend all of them. I recommend all of them. There's not one that I don't recommend. Salt of the Earth is more of a historical oddity. It's not like a great movie, but it's it's still worth your time. Now, Miles, did you do your homework? <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm so busy striking. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, Very well did, done. I'll take that well done. I, No, uh, I, I'd, seen, I'd seen something. I saw Silkwood and, and Medawan and Hoffa before, but I hadn't rewatched them recently. I downloaded Blue Collar, meant to watch it, and haven't got around to it. But I did rewatch Harlan County, USA, um, which I was like, we're just like coal miners. Uh, <laughs> We're fighting for our teeth, literally. Uh, that is so good. It's just so effing good. All right. Well, I'm glad that you both either watched or had previously seen all of these union-themed movies because, in all honesty, I, the one with the master's degree in cinema, have not seen any of them. <laughs> any of them. Not a single You've one. You've never seen Norma Ray? I've never seen Norma Ray. Can you believe what did it? You, I, what did you focus on in your cinema studies? Was it was it like animation? or? Like, yes, it was literally animation. Was it? <laughs> so you were like, I, I know all about Jan Svankmeyer's like Czechoslovakian surrealist films, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, you got it. That's true. Uh, That's true. Sorry. Very distracted there for a second. Wanted to talk about <laughs> uh, German silent animation, but we're going to talk about... Um, I have seen the second season of The Wire... And that one that episode of The Simpsons, hundred <laughs> percent. What I don't remember what episode of The Simpsons was was about a strike. You don't. Well, refresh my memory. The, okay, so the union at the nuclear plant won a dental plan, and first Homer like votes against it because Burns offers them like a keg of beer. He's like, "I'll give you all a keg of beer if you." 
don't ask for a dental plan. And they're like, great, great deal. But then Lisa goes to the orthodontist and they say she needs braces and it's going to be really expensive. And Homer realizes he doesn't have a dental plan. And then they, they wind up going on strike. That's totally taken from Blue Collar, by the way, because Harvey Keitel needs more money to pay for his daughter's braces. That's oh, like the whole well, it's, that's it's like probably the whole a thing. deliberate reference to that, which I didn't get completely went over my head because I haven't seen any of those movies. Uh, but it's a, to me a very memorable episode. There's a scene where Homer is caught between what to do and there's two voices in his head. There's one is Marge saying, Lisa needs braces. And the other is Lenny saying, dental plan. Oh, <laughs> I do remember that. Okay, I remember this episode. Again. It's so Lisa good. Lisa needs braces. Dental, dental plan. plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I never even thought of that as a union episode, but you're, yes, of course. I mean, it's about a strike. They go on strike. Yeah. And it's, I think it's an interesting place to start getting into our analysis of these movies and what we see going on in popular culture around the topic, because it's very easy on The Simpsons. The Simpsons comes out of the gate with like, your boss is an evil person, right? Your your boss is this billionaire. He's completely out of touch. He's greedy. He's going to exploit you. And, like, you can lead an okay middle-class existence by not rocking the boat, but he will just continue to push and take more from you. And, like, that's just built into the narrative. So it makes perfect sense that we are going to sympathize with the workers. No one is going to sympathize with Mr. Burns on yeah. this scenario. Well, and I think that that's what's really interesting. And I see in our little document where you're, like, historicized versus present day the 70s movies were all about the present day. After the 70s movies, when you get into the Reagan era and moving forward, they are all historical. So they all jump to the past and they're not dealing with labor right now. And all of these movies, what I found very interesting is that they are all dealing with the fact that the company, the corporation, is in no way reasonable. There is nothing reasonable about them. As a matter of fact, all they're doing is trying to just get the most out of people and give them the least. And I think that you see it in one of the things that I think is common to all of these movies is this tininess of the demands that these workers are asking for. Like the workers are never asking for the world. They're never asking for anything so insane. Like in Blue Collar, it's like he wants his fucking locker to work. There's a beautiful scene in Blue Collar where one of the workers just wants the vending machine to fucking work and he like loses it and like drives a forklift like right into the vending machine. The things that they are asking for are so small and they're still bargaining over that. They're still going to get half of what they're bargaining for. And that's a success. That's always a success that we got one half of this tiny basic standard of living that we're like, all of these movies make that very, very clear. And there's a there's a parallel to what's happening in our union now where there were quotes that were found where people from the studios were saying, we have to wait until they lose their apartments. We have to starve them out. We have to make them desperate because uh, right. they want to give us as little as possible. That is, And I get it. That's a negotiation. But man, that is some bad faith shit. 
And it's it's the tactics are maybe a little different now. There's not sticks and guns uh, for for the, for my my guild at least, but uh, not yet. Yeah. yeah, not yeah, exactly. They're really hoping that we fold. And it's like I said, it's it's been I've been heartened by uh, support for writers who are very easy to stereotype our union as a bunch of we're Hollywood jerks, and we are some of us at the very very <laughs> top. Uh, but most of us are just working class folks, honestly, just trying to make a living, entertain you from when you get home from work, and that's our job. And that's and I think people are hopefully starting to see that. Well, and that's that kind of savageness. Um, there's this CEO named Tim Gurner who uh, was being interviewed. He's a property developer in Australia. And he said that um, the gym owner turned real estate mogul uh, <laughs> claimed that uh, unemployment should go to 50% to reduce the arrogance in the employment market. No, I saw that. Like, yeah. Yeah, that guy, like we need to remind people they work for the employer. Like that kind of savageness where they are trying to really squeeze the most out of you and give you the least is in all of these films. Another thing that I noticed in these films is that there is something about the 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 labor milieu which allows us to talk about race and gender in a way that no other movies ever, ever, ever do. So Where- I, I find this surprise. I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, no, please. I, before you go on, I find this really interesting because the actual history of labor is a history of very frequently uh, labor organizers and labor leaders, white labor leaders, rejecting the calls to incorporate and include black workers and other non-white workers, people of color, because they feel like their argument will be stronger and they're more likely to get what they want and get more public sympathy. Like there's a long history of that, of like basically racism within labor unions. So I'm really curious what you've seen in movies that's addressing That's the entire plot of The Killing Floor, which is all about slaughterhouses in Chicago during World War I, where all the white labor was off fighting the war. And so black labor was allowed to come in. And then when the white workers came back, black labor was out of a job until the white labor, until the white workers struck. And then the black labor was scabs. And so the entire plot of the movie is about this one black worker who leaves the South to go work on the killing floor in these slaughterhouses and he joins the union and he's fighting with his own community because they're like fuck you your union isn't looking out for black people mm-hmm. they want to hire mm-hmm. us they want to actually pay us even though of course they're getting paid less because they're black workers like we're going to take it and it's all about the sort of inner scene conflict. One of the big moments in Norma Ray, the big thing that triggers her, the famous scene where she writes union on a piece of cardboard as they're trying to drag her out and she stands up and all of the machines stop one by one and the sound of capitalism shuts down, um, is because <laughs> the company puts a letter up about how the union is just organizing black, the totally racist letter. And her Jewish union organizer, you know, from the North tells her to write down the letter word for word because it's illegal and they can use it mm-hmm. in their ongoing negotiations. So she's trying to transcribe this letter and that's what leads to the company calling the cops on her. So race 
and the manipulation and the ways that the companies set workers against each other for their own ends and the way that people are so desperate that they will be sort of moved by those manipulations for very good reasons because they have families to feed. That is the heart of the labor movie. I, I mean, to see a 1954 movie, to see Salt of the Earth, which is very much a social problem film, very kind of like basic 50s, you know, social problem mm-hmm. film, to hear these workers talk to the white union organizer from the outside about how he doesn't understand the racial dynamics of Mexican workers in a 1954 film is shocking. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. There's one more thing I want to bring up and then I want to talk about the present day, but that one thing about all of these classic labor films, which makes it kind of hard to imagine like a a Writers Guild labor film, but we can get to that in a second, (laughs) is that there is this real thing about labor on workers' bodies. Mm -hmm. Like the camera just loves these like sweaty bodies. Like in Harlan County, not Harlan County, Norma Ray, there is not a scene where these workers are not just like glistening with sweat. Like the (laughs) bodies of workers doing like physical labor is absolutely the star of the show of all in terms of the visual language of these movies. Bodies at work is the whole fucking thing, which I think makes it kind of tricky in these days because I don't think we're going to have a movie where it's like, hotel workers changing sheets. It's not the same as like a factory, a mine, a slaughterhouse. I'm, I'm trying to picture the oh. the montage of like writers in their like, in the, they're in the zone <laughs> and they're writing and it's just like a slow motion shot of like the Dorito chip to the mouth. <laughs> yeah, it's just. And the powder on the fingers, the, the like only, the my Dorito o- chip fingers. The only thing perspiring is the bottle of Mountain Dew on the desk. Like it's not 100%, really. 100%. We're not, 100%. we're not pictures of health is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Most of us. And one last thing, from what I understand, because as I noted, I have not seen most of these. Um, but Maya, you were saying that a lot of them take place in small towns. That labor oh, is presented, yeah. as, presented as kind of a small town issue. Or? Well, it's a small community issue. And mm. so the ways that workers live and work, and this was something I remember from when I visited Harlan County, is that one of their best memories are is when the company would have a big 4th of July party, because that's a huge part of the labor story. Like, what are the tiny concessions that are made Mm. to keep workers exploited? So we're going to throw a big 4th of July party with the hot dogs and whatever. Like the keg keg of beer. Like the the, keg of beer. Nuclear power plant workers. 100%. The way that it used to be that um, uh, the company, I owe my soul to the company store, like I went to the company store. Um, where they would pay workers in script. And so the workers would have to have to buy all of their home goods at company-run stores that didn't take cash but took company script so they could exploit them that way. Like the ways that work and living were very braided up in each other is a huge part of the story because all of these people who you're striking with or who you're living near – And in Norma Ray, that's a huge part of the story. She's kind of like the town 
floozy. She's sort of doesn't have meaning in her life. She's fucking all these guys. Like that's part of it is that it's this contained community that they can hold on to. Um, and I don't think that's the same anymore. Like the UAW strike, a lot of these factories aren't even in the same city anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like spread out in different towns all over the South. So, yeah, the sort of intense small town community, uh, I think, is a huge part of the labor film. Okay, so we've talked about what's going on with Strikes this summer, and we've talked about some of the pop cultural portrayals of strikes and labor issues in mostly Hollywood cinema or independent cinema. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how this summer of strikes and labor organizing is being portrayed in the news media and in culture right now. Uh, Because I think I see a disconnect. All of these movies that we've talked about and TV shows, they tend to be very sympathetic toward labor. And they tend to take a clear side that you're not going to really find a movie that's from the point of view of the employer and portraying <laughs> the union as bad. Uh, e- even though I just I started writing that movie in my head when you said I'm like wow that'd be really fascinating. Right? To show. I'd love <laughs> right? to see I I sell the hero one. CEO. <laughs> exactly. You know, against the corrupt union. Sure. Yeah. Like that could be a thing, but it's it's not really. And that makes sense because I think um, the underdog story is just a more appealing story and the already powerful person fighting against the less powerful is just, it's going to be harder to make that dramatically compelling. Drama and comedy both prefer uh, punching up than punching down for sure. Exactly. But, But how does that jive with, how does that correspond with what we see in media portrayals of what's going on right now? Because I'm not sure that it does match up. Well, as far as just like the press coverage of of this the strike that I'm in, there's um, there's there's conflicts of interest with some of the people who are writing for some of the trade magazines, which are paid by the studios. So you've got a lot of the a lot of the industry press is trying to appear objective, but in reality, it's it's news releases for the studios. And so you'll see headlines about like, you know, ancillary businesses around Hollywood are suffering. And yes, they are. That sucks. Strikes are hurt everybody beyond just the workers who are on strike. Yes, that is part of it. And that's but that's not our fault. Like we're trying to make a deal for everybody to get paid more. So there is more work. So those ancillary businesses do better as well. But the way that the framing is in a lot of these media reports is these writers, they're causing harm. And that's, that's yes. shitty. <laughs> and also I think that because we're talking about labor and when you mentioned uh, the wire season two, yeah, like the labor that we're fighting about, is not sexy. Like, they're not building cars or exploding mines or like, you know, like, they're not in some small town kind of romantic. Like, Starbucks workers organizing, fast food workers organizing. It's not that same kind of like, 
sexy world that you're being dropped into. And it's and it's urban versus rural. That's right. And demographically, it's going to be different. Amazon workers uh, and Starbucks workers in cities are going to be different than mine workers and auto plant workers right. in in the Rust Belt. So yeah, it's it's a very different thing. And, it, and you're right, we haven't seen those movies of of this is when Amazon, you know, right. the romantic Amazon strike movie hasn't happened yet. And right. I don't think it will. I don't think the romantic like hotel union worker strike movie is going to happen. Um, I feel like in the best thing that happened to your strike is Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher saying like, we're going, we're, our show is going back on the air because that allows a very public bad guy. Oh, yeah. It allows like, it allows this character of these like douchebags that we can kind of glom onto and then when they are like actually well they're they're at the I, negotiating table we're I'm not gonna, gonna go back I'm gonna to stick work. up for I'm gonna stick useful. up for Drew Barrymore coming around and doing the right thing. I won't stick okay. up for Bull Marcus. He's a, is a douchebag no matter what and he just realized he had to save his own ass. I think that Drew Barrymore Well I think nobody was gonna be a guest on his show yeah, right and, now and he's and, like, oh I guess I can't do my and, fucking and show. Or that, yes. And I think Drew Barrymore probably had the same realization but I am under the impression that she was given bad advice made a bad choice saw the blowback put out a statement and as i saw people who are selling were like oh this stupid bitch blah blah i'm like no 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 like let's bring her into the fold she's she did the right thing let's thank her as a union and blah 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 and it i won't thank bill maher for anything but um because <laughs> he's a jerk but i it's yes it, it what was interesting is we haven't had anything to shut down in forever. Like pretty much when the writers went on strike, like I was part of the very, I, I went picketing when this all started in May and we were act, active shoots, picketing people who were shoot. Ryan Murphy was shooting and we we're picketing him and all these other things were shooting and we were picketing them. And so it felt like you're on a mission and then SAG went on strike and they're like, well, we literally can't go. We can't shoot. Anything. There was barely anything left, but it all went away. And so all of our pickets for the last several months have been informational and media, which doesn't feel very media. Yeah. It feels a little aimless. And you have to do it. You got to stay out there. You got to get the support. You got to get the media. It's part of the whole game. Um, leafleting is boring, but you got to do it. And then all of a sudden they're like, screw it. We're going to come back. All these talk show hosts came back and Drew Barrymore uh, thought that she could thread this needle of, but what about my crew? Now, look. I have John Oliver as a friend of mine, and I know that he's doing uh, touring stand-up comedy, not because he's dying to get out in front of audience or not, but because he's raising money to pay his staff. And and so That's is right. Seth Meyers. Yeah. And these are good people who are doing it. And Drew Barrymore has the money to do it. And I think that she's she realized that. And I think she will do the right thing and she'll pay her crew. Uh, and I think all those other shows, the talk folded and all these other shows started to fold, except for The View, which I'm still picketing. And I don't understand how they're how they have their heads above water. I don't understand how they sleep at night because they are scabs. There's no nice way to put it. Uh, so, but it was kind of nice. I agree with Maya. Like having a villain, having Drew Barrymore get and just I, I'm on a thread with a bunch of producers and writers and friends, and everybody predicted the other thing happening. They said everything's going to start to fold. All the other talk shows are going to come back. All late nights going to come back. I had a bunch of my friends predict the opposite happening, and I pray. I was like, I really hope not. And then when I saw Drew fold and everybody else tumble, I was like, it was such a personal victory. Not because I was smarter than my friends, but um, that I was like, maybe ten years ago they would have folded, and I think they did. I think the Daily Show came back pretty soon afterwards when I was working there, non-union. 
um, they came back and everyone else came back. So there is precedent for what we thought was going to happen, and it didn't happen this time. They folded. And that was kind of exciting. That was really exciting. So what's different this time? It's very, it's very yeah. different. Yeah. But what, but what, what, what but makes what, it well, different? What makes it different? Um, what I talked about earlier, I think, is, and what you guys opened with, where there is a labor movement afoot. And there are all of these unions marching in solidarity and vice versa. We're marching with other unions. They're just, and, and social media, <laughs> that's another huge difference. Enormous difference. Getting out the message and then having actors, like, yeah, some writers are known people and they're celebrities in their own right, but then having actors join with, and the, and the actors, by the way, they were with us on the line from day one. They were there with us. Yes. On day, they've been at every step of the way. That's something I wanted to mention is that even within Hollywood, like you have all of the unions, but even within the industry for the actors and the writers and Yahtzee and for everybody to be like, oh, the only way this is going to work mm -hmm. is if we're all there together is huge, huge. And yeah, new. we shut down I, early in the strike. I remember we shut down uh, the Daredevil shoot. It was a really early morning and it was a big scene and there were a lot of extras and the extras were coming out wondering what the hell was going on. When they realized that the WGA was there picketing, I'd say two dozen extras picked up signs and started walking with us. And I was like, that's like, this is like, it was, that's amazing. yeah, I was like, oh man, like this is, <laughs> I'm not, it kicked the cynic out of me. It really did. I really felt good about what we were doing and, and about the message. So th there's a myriad of reasons why it's different. Social media gets the message out. There is a labor movement. People are frankly just sick and fucking tired of getting paid peanuts and watching corporate profits grow. It it feels reductive or almost like I'm a college freshman and corporations are bad. But it, it's, it is sort of that simple and it's no longer trite to say it. It's like, yes, there's too much money at the very top. Bernie Sanders had a good point, everybody. He was right all along. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's the post-Bernie era. And I'm not a Bernie stan, but he was right. <laughs> Me neither, but I was, I literally, as you were speaking, I was about to ask, how much of this do we attribute to Bernie Sanders? I mean, listen, he's <laughs> he's been saying it for like 70 years, so he's going to be right every cycle, like every 25 years when it's cool to be in a union. He's just going to, you're like, oh, Bernie had it right. I'm like, well, he hasn't changed his tune. But no, of course he's right. He's right. Too, and he's, he's always been right. Yeah. But I think that's, that's one thing that... Um, I was writing, I wrote this thing about like trauma porn, about like serial documentaries, uh, documentaries about serial abusers. And we've talked about it on this mm. show, like all of the, it's like kind of the new hot genre, like, ooh, this serial rapist, let's hear yeah, all about yeah. it or whatever. Um, but part of it, all of those documentaries, what they all have in common is that it doesn't end up being about the bad person. It ends up being about the systems that enabled the bad person, all mm. of them to a one. It is like an establishment of the genre. It's like USA Gymnastics, or it's the Catholic Church, or it's the power of celebrity, or whatever. Like, all of these documentaries are not like, why was this disgusting person evil? It's about what systems allowed this person to be this disgusting for this fucking long, right? And what I was writing about is that we are in a moment where the Reaganization of America, where collective issues or collective powers or systemic injustice was destroyed in the face of like, those people are just lazy and it's all about the individual. Yeah. Like that was the big Reagan thing. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the sort of, I mean, Rebecca and I were talking about this before you jumped on about like the, um, 
the air traffic controllers and how Reagan just fired all 11,000 of them, the early 80s. And this is why we don't see a lot of labor movies after the early 80s, because Reagan was all about destroying the idea in this last push of, of the Soviet Union of organized labor. These are just lazy people. Like we are all about the, the great individual, the great male individual. And now we're in this moment where I think like post Me Too, uh, post March for Black Lives, where we are reintegrating the idea of systemic fucking problems and the problems of systemic capitalism. And we're in this new moment for that. And I think that also has a huge like contribution to this labor moment. I was just reading about I was just re- I forgot the author. Someone told me I should read it. It's about like the four cycles of like humans and it's built into like every 25 years, there's some new cycle. And this person talks about how the millennials are getting out of that individualistic mode and they're starting to think more about how to work as a group, how to work as a system, how to work as a society better. Um, and that they're going to be the next sort of uh, great generation in, in their words, I suppose. So it's the same idea that, yeah, I think there's people coming together now going like it, this system is just not sustainable anymore. It's not. And yeah. and I think there's also that that Reagan was followed by the emergence of the high tech industry that was so dependent on the character of the high tech genius. Mm. And like the guy, like the, you know, whatever, the tech billionaire. like yeah. the tech billionaire, which was all about him and not about any of the people making the actual shit that he's selling. I think that's the narrative you're battling right now. Yeah. It, it is like the the romanticization of the billionaire. There's still the legacy of that Reagan ethos and the Reagan ethic of sort of like, I got mine. If you don't have yours, you're lazy, whatever. If you're asking for more, you must be lazy. Uh, It's a meritocracy. If you don't have as much as you want, it's because you lack merit, I guess. Uh, But there's also uh, added onto that, like as another layer, is this admiration of the billionaire as this incredible individual uh, you're moving away from the Monty Burns, the hmm. the boss is this exploitative capitalist, out of touch, old man. Now he's this young, hip, cool, su- supposedly super smart guy uh, who's there because he was so innovative and great. And he's like, changing the world. Yeah, Steve. And- how many fucking Steve Jobs movies are there? Right, like, right. Jesus fucking Christ. But I, I think if anything, we've learned by watching Elon Musk and his trajectory that like billionaires are like, you can't have a certain amount of money and not just be fucking insane. Like it's certain at a certain amount of time, it's it's a monkey's curse to have that much that much money. And, and you're so disconnected from just life and society and how things work. And. I don't know if Musk is a genius, whatever was. I don't know anything about him other than like, you're just batshit crazy. You're just a crazy person. I would argue that the cause and effect, I mean, it can work both ways. Having a lot of money makes you out of touch and disconnected. But I would also argue that the mentality that it takes to become a billionaire, if you weren't already, um, you have to be a sociopath. Yes. Oh, no. You have to already be messed up. In, in order to get to that point. And then you have the good billionaires who, you know, they do this fake philanthropy with like, oh, I gave $100 million away. I'm like, yeah, but you have $100 billion. 
Like yeah. that's right. hundred million is nothing. That's like me giving someone a hundred dollars a year. That's like there's there's no comparison. That's not. It's a drop in the bucket. So they they cover if they're not crazy, they cover their asses and they're they're just nihilists. They're they're all freaking nihilists. Like I don't know what else to. I, I think we watch shows like we talked about media earlier. I think we I think there's there's an attraction to shows like Secession, and White Lotus. Because um, we'd love to have that money, but we also know those people are fucking assholes. And so we love to hate those people, but we also love to see what they do with all that cash. It's like both, oh, we get both we sides of it. We did a whole episode. We did a whole episode about succession where I'm like, there are not enough guillotines on this show. Like, yeah. people get so they start to become like fans of characters and like, I'm standing Shiv. And you're like, no, they're all disgusting. Yeah, but if you spend that much time, with characters, you start identifying with them, right. like whether the show wants you to or not. And I do think that that contributes to this cultural phenomenon where people do romanticize and kind of worship billionaires that works against unions and labor. And, I, you know, Miles, earlier you were talking about the trades, the Hollywood trades, and how they are used by the studios to plant stories. And part of that is that the mainstream media, like real journalists, are not covering it that much, in my opinion, at least that I've seen. I feel like the trades are doing most of the covering of the writers and actors' strikes, and they're not, they don't know how to journalism. And so then, and that's the question that we have, because we're like, why isn't this a story? And I wanted to ask you if you were still working on a, a Sam B type show or a daily you know, show type show, like, how would you cover it? How would you tell the story? Oh, like, boy. what would you do to like, make this something that kind of hits? That's that it's tough. Cause we all that it's so like, you're t you'd have to report upon yourself. And that's like, you, we, that would be icky for us to ever do. So I, I can't, it's hard to wrap my head around. I mean, I've certainly, I certainly see a few stories every week in the times and the, in the Atlantic and some of the, you know, the more major mainstream publications, um, you know, they're not maybe in the nitty gritty. They're not finding the most interesting stories here and there, but how would I cover it with satire? Like, like how would I satirize what's going on now? Yeah. Fuck. That's a tough nut to crack. Because the whole point of those shows is satire as a means to make people just pay attention. I mean, there are all of those studies that they did where they're like, People who watch Fox News versus people sure. who watch The Daily Show and who's more accurate? Well, who actually has a more accurate picture of what's going on? The Daily Show viewers. So there's there is a yes, balance. And, and a classic Daily Show take, and this is the John Stewart era. I can't speak to the Trevor Noah era, but the John Stewart take would have been uh to do a woes me uh, with a millionaire or a billionaire would be like, like, let's look at, and of course you'd never get access to these people, but it would just be like, he can only afford this size yacht. And he goes, like, that would be the classic. Yeah, yeah, like, that's yeah. all you can do is poke right. fun at how much they have by being earnest about it. That would be the classic right. that I should take. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that satire would be satisfying anymore. Maybe there's a reason why John doesn't do the show anymore because that satire eventually got maybe a little old. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you satirize this. And then, look, I was part of the Samantha Bee, and we had, like, rage comedy and, like, commentary comedy and social social commentary comedy. And it was a little more we, – we stripped some of the satire out of it. We stopped being ironic. You know, there's a there, – uh, I, I like to call it shrew comedy. Shrew, shrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> we called it uh, the, at the at Sam B show. We called it shrill. It was shrill comedy because that's right, the sound right. of a woman's voice to most men is just you, un, you can't. It's yeah. Oh yeah. It's really it's tough to to listen. To. Terrifying. Um, Intolerable. Um, I like I like your show, but her voice. I'm like, you really just said that to me out loud in person. Um, wow. So I yeah I mean I don't know how to I, now I would just want to scream into the television and be like you fucking fucking fucks like just fu- just give us the fucking money what the fuck like <laughs> you greedy motherfuckers so that's maybe not funny but it's cathartic. Well, I think that that's what's so interesting. You have some of these characters that are like the succession characters. So you have like Martin Shkreli, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's a great. Villain. villain. He's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's an amazing villain. Yeah. Because he's like, yeah, I'm just going to kill people and they're just going to give me all their money for life-saving drugs. Like, I feel like that that it's sort a, of- it, it, it helps too that he has a very punchable face. Very much so. Very much. Um, but yeah. I feel like there is a way that the company doesn't have a face that you exactly. can punch. Um, and, and the stories that work are the ones where you can reduce it to like a great fucking character. Okay. Like yeah. Nobody, Norma nobody Ray. knows who David Zasloff is like in the general public. No one knows who the CEO, the CEOs are. And I think that's what you're hitting at is that's the problem is we don't have like Disney as a villain is, is hard to picture, especially when you think of Mickey Mouse and Netflix as a villain is hard to picture when you're like, but I love Netflix. I turn it on and it tells me what to watch. So yes, it, it, it's hard to create that narrative of he's the villain or they're the villain when it's, yeah, it's this thing. And- at the same time, it's also there's no hero, there's no individual heroes. It's a collective story about collective bargaining, literally. So yeah, it, it you don't have, you have a Norma Ray in the story. Well, we have Fran Drescher, <laughs> right? Right. Fran Drescher, I think, is great because she is great. she's recognizable. Yeah, but she's an older woman, so she can't be like accused of being glamorous. Mm-hmm. Like. There's a way that I think she's threading the needle really well as a public figure, actually. Yeah. So SAG does have sort of a leg up. And I love that we're we're doing this at the same time because they do have that star power and they do have that attention where it could be like these people are on the picket line. And that helps tremendously. That does give us a slight edge. And when the Drew Barrymore story comes out, that gives us uh, – a villain and then a hero. Like to me, like again, I, I saw a lot of people, the majority of people from the union saying, we welcome her. We're very happy she made the right choice. Now we're going to make you a hero, which is the appropriate thing to do after yes. you filled someone with shame to do the right thing. <laughs> so right. It, those figures certainly help. But you're right. We don't like, we don't have a real good villain. Like, yeah, I don't know. And I feel like that's the tricky, tricky part of this moment where. The anonymity of the corporation mm. is its biggest strength. Yes. Yeah. Where that's the the way that it's this company and the fact that there are real live humans making the decision to try to make people as miserable in their lives as possible. Like, let's have people lose their houses. Like, that's, you would think that that's pretty good. And, and that beneath all all of that, that's really what they want to do. And that's what capitalism wants to do. It wants to give you as little as possible at every moment. And the more that we can tell that story, um, and I think that there's so much fear, 
I, I was saying to Rebecca, like the first three decades of the 20th century were the big labor decades of this country. Mm. And they managed to quash labor by fear of immigrants, fear of Jews, fear of communism and Bolshevism, fear of the outsider, fear of the outsider slipping in. And I feel like maybe it's been long enough since the end of the Soviet Union that we can start imagining collective power uh, and not have it be those commies, those reds. Nikki Haley was on the news in the last 24 hours and said something. Joe Biden's going to use it in in a campaign ad. She's like, he's the most pro-union president we've ever had. And he, you know, he just wants to give people things that they ask for. Like, like, yeah, living wage, healthcare, (laughs) want to feed my kids. Like, yeah, we're asking for some things here. Sorry, Nikki. Yeah, that's. I I do think we're in a political moment where. I mean, it dates back before Obama, but you can really see a shift around the time of the Obama presidency where he was a very middle of the road technocrat and they were calling him a Marxist communist infiltrator. I wonder why. What was different Hmm, about him? Hmm. Exactly. But but there was definitely a point at which like that actually kind of flipped a switch on the left. I I flipped a switch is maybe strong because I don't think it was that sudden. I think it's been gradual. But I think there's been a realization of like, you can be as middle of the road as you want, and they're going to call you a Marxist communist infiltrator. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Absolutely. And if they're going to do that anyway, we might as well be Marxist. (laughs) Like, we might as well embrace what we actually fucking believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Joe Biden, I would argue, has governed more to the left than Obama did. 100%. I think but he, he can do. as an old white man. He's allowed as he's an allowed old white man. He's allowed to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's allowed to. get away to. with it. Yeah. Well, because his, he's being run by AOC. That's why. She's right. pulling well, the strings. That's what they say. But that's the thing. I think there's also a, a, a phenomenon of the Trump era, which is where um, – a lot of people on the left have checked out from caring about like trying to win over people on the right or even the imaginary middle. We're sort of like they are in their own world. They're in their own bubble. They are going to believe that Joe Biden is a savvy master criminal and also an uh, old person suffering from dementia who has no idea mm-hmm. where he is. He's both at the same yeah. time. Always. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Always. But like they're going to believe that. So – there's no point. There's no point in trying to find any common ground or try to meet them in the middle. Forget that shit. Let's fight for what we need to fight for. I can't I can't argue with that emotion having having worked on two highly political shows over the past yeah, 16 years. Right. Like you're not going to win any like we didn't win anybody over on the Daily Show. Like at the end of the day like maybe John was a little bit more centrist. Uh, but like no one, like he didn't move the needle. We didn't win any battle. He won one battle with, uh, you know, funds for nine 11 victims. And that was, I'm very proud of that. He did that. It's great. He did that on his own really more than on the show. Uh, but everyone was like, oh, you guys make such a difference. And maybe I, I am still enough of a cynic to be like, did we make a difference? And then full frontal, same thing. Like, did we make it? Like, this is we were- how you made a difference. This is how okay. you made a difference. Okay. Because it organized and got excited the people on the left. It got people feeling like excited and there was a voice and there was somebody that they were behind and it got people... Yeah, feeling like they're not alone. Yes. Yeah. And I think that has made a huge difference politically, actually, because... But you're you're talking about catharsis and I think that people people wanted action. No, 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 no. I'm talking about 
action. And I actually feel like there is a way that, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I will never forget the Trump can't read thing from Samantha B. It was like, very that good. Is, it was really top five. I can't take credit for that one, but that was one of my favorite bits on that the show. That was yeah. really, really good. But I think that there is a way that because I think the right wing has been setting the agenda and the left wing is always reactive, 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 reactive. Mm -hmm. So taking the abortion conversation, which we've talked about a lot on this show, where mm -hmm. we're always like, safe, legal, and rare. <laughs> and I feel like the left has always- And the right is like, they want to murder babies in the That's 23rd it. month. That's it. Or yeah. the yeah. right is like, these are all a bunch of commies that don't want people to actually have their own ideas. And I feel like, I feel like those shows have given left wing people a language with which to claim their space when so much of the language has been dictated by the right and the left reacting and trying to assuage. And I feel like a, that's, I think, what a lot of these are doing. I feel like John Oliver does that with his like deep dives where he's like, I'm going to break this fucking down for you so you can feel confident in your position. And I feel like that's where it actually is very strong. It's okay. I'll, I'll buy, I'll buy most of that, but they'll only counter with this. How many people are watching these shows in America? It's not that many. And I say that wish, wishing there were more people that watch these shows because <laughs> I worked on a lot of them, but there's just not like not that many people watched on Oliver. Not that many, like I just in aggregate, like, yeah, like, yeah. it's Although, a, it's, it's in a small subsection. Age, <laughs> in this day and age, though, it's almost like those clips that go viral on social media are where sure. the impact really is. Like, it would be great sure. if more people were watching because- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More people watch these shows, uh, yeah, in, in little clips than any other way. That is how they that is how they consume these shows. But even that, even that percentage of people, in my opinion, is pretty small. Even if it's a million people who watch a John Oliver clip on YouTube, that's just a million people. Maybe he gets another couple million through other social media things. Maybe he gets another 500,000. That's, you know, three and a half million people out of but how many? But then do those people go and organize? Yeah. No. Okay. Because no. you know what? Like, some, <laughs> no, they some, don't. No, no, no. I don't think they do. No. <laughs> some of them A thousand do. people, you know, listen to the Velvet Underground, but they all started a band. So like, <laughs> I actually feel like there is a way where you get, um, I mean, you know, my son during quarantine, during COVID, he was like 11 and he fell into this rabbit hole of watching Trevor Noah. And for his birthday, we took him to see Trevor Noah do stand-up. And the mm -hmm. way that that made the world coherent for him was unbelievable. I, I, I have much more, much less cynicism about it than you do, but you see how the sausage is made. To, uh, to, to, to paraphrase what Trump probably says um, about the Jews in his club, he's one of the good ones. <laughs> Miles... Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. God, this is so good. We really, really appreciate this and this conversation. Thank you so much for we got you before the uh, the deal is struck. So we're very grateful for Cross that. fingers. Thank this you. week we'll find out. All right, All right guys. Good luck to All you, right. and thank you for thank being you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was awesome. That was great. Maya, thank you for introducing me to Miles and inviting him He's to so join good. us. 
he's the best and I'm so excited to have him on. So listeners, what do you think? Are you striking? Should you be? Are you in an industry where you're like, I don't even know how to organize that? Well, how might you? Or if you do know how to organize and you want to share that with other listeners, let us know so we can help you disseminate that information. Also, let us know uh, what you've been seeing in terms of media coverage of this hot labor summer. Are you even aware that it's a hot labor summer? Do they know it's Christmas? <laughs> Do they know it's strike time at all? Yes. Um, you can get in touch with us so many ways, but the best way is to go to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast and if you become a member at any level you can join our discord the sauce speakeasy and we can talk about all this great stuff uh you can share with us your german pronunciation of things or other languages does your language have a version of critter shops because i actually <laughs> would love to know that um and uh you can also find us on the email sauce podcast at gmail.com on any of the socials yeah we are at sauce podcast wherever you're gonna look you can find me as at gynostar on all the various platforms and you can find me at maya garance anywhere you are looking for maya garances do get in touch tell us what your problematic faves are tell us what else you'd like us to ruin and we will be back soon with more stuff to ruin. Always. Adios, amigas. Bye.